Welcome to Challenging Paradigm X. My name is Xerxes Waschengeer and in my podcast I interview people who challenge the status quo. Is laughter perhaps more contagious than any virus that we know? And believe me, I'm not joking when I tell you there's something like a laughter pandemic. Don't laugh. Have you ever heard of shock induction? It's a method in hypnosis to catapult people into deep trance on an individual level, but it can also be used to do this with a whole society. Is racist response perhaps often a trauma-triggered reaction to a previous shock induction? Can hypnosis contribute to sexual healing and help the unorgasmed have orgasms? And did you know that we can learn new skills and also heal in our dreams and induce these possibilities through hypnosis? My guest today is Albert Nuremberg. He's an acclaimed filmmaker and hypnotherapist, and he's one of the world's leading experts on laughter. Albert has produced a number of documentaries, including one on stupidity, one on laughter, and one on 9-11. The latter initiated his path as a hypnotherapist, and today he's renowned for his TEDx talk on If Hypnosis is Real, that has been watched more than 10 million times. So if you're interested in these topics, stay tuned. Hi, here's Xerxes, and today I'm here with Albert Nuremberg. So, Albert, I hope you're well. And Thank you. Please introduce uh, yourself and tell us who you are, what you do. Sure. It's great to be here. As we're, I, I, think I'm, I think one reason why I'm on this podcast is like I've arrived at a moment in my life where I start to recognize that I think in paradigms, perhaps like you, and I think that... Paradigms are sort of a powerful way of, of, of sort of reframing one's existence. And I should explain that I, am, I started off in career-wise as a journalist working as a newspaper reporter, then was a feature writer, and I became a filmmaker in a weird way. I was reporting on a conflict in Canada involving Mohawks. So Mohawk are native indigenous people, Indians in Canada, and there there was an armed uprising of Mohawks against the police in a particular area, and there turned into a standoff between the Mohawks and the Canadian Army, and the, my, myself and a photographer were able to smuggle a camera behind the lines into the Mohawk encampment. At that time, I was a reporter, not a filmmaker, but because I had the only video camera in the situation... I was hired by TV networks all over the world. At that time, it was a big event. It was called the Oka Crisis. And so I became a filmmaker in that experience very quickly. And that's sort of like the story of my life. I have these sort of weird experiences that changed my life dramatically. And then I went, I made a number of documentaries. So people, I specialize in paradigm ideas. So one of them is a documentary called Stupidity. And it's a, a documentary I made for television, which suggests that Stupidity is a strategy in, in, for life that a number of people, particularly in America, use stupidity to their advantage. I think one would assume that, that we're all trying to be more intelligent, we're all trying to say smarter things, but actually 
I tried to demonstrate that that's not true, that, that stupidity is far more powerful than intelligence in certain, certain ways, and that there's a, a kind of active ignorance and stupidity that you see, particularly in American culture, that's probably a result of the class divide, ultimately. So that was the sort of first big documentary I made. And the one that a lot of people know is another documentary called Laughology, which is about laughter. And again, it was a paradigm because it was the first documentary ever made about laughter, which sounds outrageous, but there have been a number, many films about humor, but no one had ever investigated laughter itself, the behavior. And so that opened up a whole world for me. I think laughter is one of the great civilizing forces for not just humans, but for mammals. It's what makes the world a sort of happier more playful place. And so in making those films, I started to realize each of these is a paradigm. For example, when I made Laughology, I became a laughologist. I would get hired by conferences or events and brought in just to make the audience laugh without telling jokes. I would just demonstrate laughter behavior. And because laughter is contagious, even just demonstrating the behavior will make an audience laugh. So I actually, for years, my full-time job was laughologist, where all I did was basically demonstrate something that is innate. Laughter is an innate behavior. And I would just demonstrate it in crowds. And, and, and I would explain the history. There's some very interesting history. Famously, in Tanzania, in 1962, there was a huge laughter epidemic where... 30,000 people started laughing and could not stop for weeks. That's a very interesting event. It's, it can be possibly explained by mass psychogenic illness. So in the film, we explore a lot of the un unusual laughter phenomena, which it turns out the, you know, the weirdest things about laughter, actually, we all share in common. The weirdest thing about laughter is how contagious it is. It's probably the most powerful contagious behavior of, all, of them all because... When somebody laughs contagiously, they are literally in your brain causing signals to change so that you laugh along with them. You can, you can try to stop it, but it's a very powerful behavior. So as the sort of last paradigm that I think is maybe relevant is as, as a filmmaker, I did a, actually did a very strange documentary. I was just assigned to do it. It was I found that there was an interesting pattern of people who had dreams about the events of 9/11, the the terrorist event in New York 2001 before it happened. So a lot of people had very clear dreams where they let's say saw planes flying into a building or buildings collapsing and they were the dreams were notable enough that they either told somebody or in the case of people who were seeing therapists they told their therapist and the therapist wrote it down you know in a book and or in a and then when the events happened there was actually a record where somebody said i had this exact dream and i had the dream before it happened and i had a friend who had that exact dream before it happened and it was a weird experience because i had kind of made fun of them they had told me they had this dream about burning buildings and the two building, twin towers and fires. And I had said, wow, that's a kind of weird dream, good thing that hasn't happened. And then the next day it did. So 
to make a long story short, when I was working on the film, because there was some debate about how people died in the actual event, I watched a lot of footage, terrible footage of what happened to people. And I actually became traumatized. I think I have a previous history of trauma. And when I saw the imagery, I was aware that some of it got completely stuck inside my head, meaning I couldn't think without seeing these pictures. And it gave me a very sort of bad feeling about life and about, and I realized I had developed anxiety. And I happened to just see an ad online where the ad roughly said something along the lines of, do you have obsessive memories that you can't get rid of or intrusive thoughts? Call this number. So being a bit adventurous, I thought, what, what do I have to lose? And I called this number and I actually did not even know what hypnosis was at that time. This is uh, now about 15, 16 years ago. And uh, this guy basically answered the phone, friendly guy, and said, I think I can help you with your problem. And then in half an hour, this problem that I'd had continuously for six months, literally pictures I could not get out of my mind, went away. It was immediately cured. And I couldn't believe it. And so after that, I just sort of decided I had to learn how to, you know, I had to learn hypnosis. It took me a, a few years. And then that opened up a whole avenue. I now that sort of has brought me here to your show where I think that hypnosis is the area where there are more potential paradigm shifts almost than anything else. Uh, sounds very interesting. And, and when you call uh, this number and the period after that, would you call this the turning point of your life? Or was there any other major turning points in your life? I think there was a really big, I think I've had a number of turning points. One of them, so one of the, yes, in terms of my ability to heal myself as a human being, it was the turning point in my life. I would say that up to then, I was always becoming more damaged. And when that happened, I was able to reverse that kind of phenomena, that energy. But I had another one that when I made this film, Laughology, I think it was a similar thing. And when I, when I made Laughology, People always ask me, like, where, where did you get this idea to make a film about laughter? Because laughter is something hiding in plain sight. It's something that we do all the time. It's very obvious. You don't, nobody thinks, hey, that, you know, that weird sound you made, I'm going to make a documentary about it. But what happened was interesting is that I was, I was working in television at the time doing satirical type TV shows that were actually a little bit dangerous. So what we would do is we would take actors And we put them into real political situations, usually in Canada or the United States. So we'd have fake actors and, and we'd often have actors impersonating the bodyguards of well-known politicians. But the problem was we were too good. And what would happen on, on one, one incident where the um, prime minister of Canada was walk, had to walk from one basically room outside to another room and the real police misidentified our actors as if they were another group of policemen. And they ordered our actors to walk because they wanted to show that they were the more important police. They ordered our fake police to escort the Prime Minister of Canada, you know, through a hallway and out the building. So which means that the only people that were protecting <laughs> the head of state of our country were these like buffoon actors that were like friends of mine. And so when the, the police realized what had happened, we were immediately detained 
and threaten. And, you know, they threatened to confiscate our equipment, to put us in jail. We, we had endangered people. I mean, they knew that we were not malevolent people. We weren't trying to hurt anybody. We just wanted to tell funny jokes. And after that experience, I remember thinking that I was looking at my life thinking, what am I looking for? Why am I so desperate to create, to get into these sort of dangerous situations, you know, for humor? And I'll tell you the whole, the whole story because I think it's funny. You may know of Tom Green, but Tom Green is a, you know, he's a Canadian but now Hollywood actor, for, famous for sort of a shock kind of comedy. And his, I think what you saw with Tom Green is he always had to push the envelope. If he, you know, if he threw poop on people's faces, he had to go further the next time, you know. And I was reading a, a magazine about Tom Green dry, on a shoot driving in a car and they came across a dead moose on the road. And so Tom Green told his film crew to start filming. He ran out of the car and he stuck his head up the dead moose's ass. This is like a rotting corpse. And I remember thinking, is this where satire has to go? You know, is this where I have to go? And really in that moment, I had an epiphany because I asked myself, what am I really looking for? In my mind, I thought I was looking for the ultimate joke, right? But the epiphany I had was that the ultimate joke really is laughter. It's not the comedy, it's not the it's laughter itself, this common universal shared wonderful behavior that begins in all humans at approximately one month has virtually no exceptions. Humor varies from culture to culture, from person to person. We all laugh the same way. And when that when I had that epiphany, that was the second big you know, change in my life. That really changed me. And and so I was luckily able to then convince, convince I wasn't wrong in my theory that laughter was hiding in plain sight because I did a bunch of research and I found out, whoa, no one's ever made a documentary that explores laughter. Tons on humor, none on laughter. And when I did, I realized laughter is like far, like a truly amazing thing. You know, there's a, there's an exact mathematical code for how people laugh. You can't mess with the code. If you do, people don't understand you. Uh, that it's intensely contagious. Of course, it has health properties, strengthens your immune system. It's an antidepressant. It's free. So that that blew the doors wide open for me. So when when did you do this uh, documentary? Quite a. It was a 2009, but it's 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 often it's now free online. I've, we made it free for a while. It was it played in theaters and then it was like a t you know on some TV networks. But I deliberately wanted to make it. It's on YouTube. You can find it there. Laughology. Okay, so it was also after your experience with with the hypnotist when you kind went of, into kind of the same. Yeah, around the same time. But later, I started to realize it's only later that I started to take hypnosis more seriously and. And it's, I would say it's a different, you know, ball of wax than than laughter. It's a whole other game. But yes, yeah. So that so that those were two big paradigm shifts for me. It's not, it's not the it's not the humor. It's the laughter. That's a big mm. paradigm for me. Do you see yourself still as a filmmaker, or are you still in filmmaking? Yeah. So I guess 
I, I guess you, you you're thinking also in documentaries when you think about things that you process. I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. So so what documentary? Even if you might not uh, ever gonna do it, but what documentary are you thinking about right now? I'm always thinking about a few, but like kind of well, well there's one there's a couple I'm working on but one I've thought about recently is 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 the theory of shock inductions so I, I recently did a TEDx in Switzerland in hypnosis there's basically two ways to hypnotize people well, there's probably more but two rough styles one style is you simply sit somebody down with their consent and you you ask them to relax and then you show them a bunch of behavioral tricks that cause them to relax. One of them is uh, slow breathing. You slow down their pace. Then you create imagery that might be, might be positive. This style is called progressive relaxation. And it's the typical kind of hypnosis that you see in a, if you went to a hypnotherapist. The other kind of hypnosis, which is not well understood, is called either snap inductions or shock inductions. And... I think it's worthy of being a film because it is the way by which we are often manipulated culturally. It might be the way that you can, you know, that, that people start wars, essentially. And I'll explain how it's done hypnotically. So if anyone's been to a stage hypnosis show, now, it's interesting, uh, traveling around, I find stage hypnosis has, has different levels of popularity, country to country. In America, it's quite big. What's interesting, in some countries, it's still illegal. In Belgium, it is illegal to do public demonstrations of hypnosis, which is hilarious. But in most European countries, you're allowed to do it. But I find just you're, you're, it's less popular in Europe. But so what, is, what a shock induction is, is basically you can, if you sit somebody down once again, and you basically move them or you know, get them to relax a little bit, in about 10 seconds, by shocking them in a particular way, you can drop them into what's called a somnambulant trance, which is a very deep trance. Their eyes roll up in their head, uh, their muscles become limp, and they appear to faint. Now, they haven't fainted because they can hear you, they can hear everything that's going on, but from the outward appearance, they sort of flop over and they look like they have fainted. So, when people see this and without understanding it, they can actually become quite terrified because they think, wow, you've just knocked that person out. But it's not quite that. But the reason why I think it makes for a great film is I think that a shock induction is a little bit what the lockdown, the international lockdown that happened, you know, it's happened during this COVID-19 pandemic, uh, is a similar thing because the formula for 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 creating a shock induction is simply to begin relaxing somebody in a sort of authoritative way don't worry i'm you know i've got you and then to surprise them any kind of surprise as long as the surprise is swift and drastic so the, the surprise can be a sentence like there's a terrible epidemic and you know we're all in danger or it can be an action like from here on in you know, everyone will be, by law, forced to stay inside. Now, the reason, in hypnosis, the reason why we do shock inductions or snap inductions, they're often seen as, if I, I, I work as a hypnotherapist, and if I had a client who was very hard to hypnotize, 
because some people are. And I would say to them, if you like, you know, we can try more sort of aggressive methods. So a shock induction or a snap induction is a more aggressive method. And, it, and if they consent and they're okay with it, then you, you do it. And often you'll get a good result. So the reason why you do it is that the principle of a shock induction is that whatever comes after the shock. So in a stage hypnosis show, you can shock somebody, drop them into trance, and then you can tell them that they can't speak English anymore. And that person will start speaking gibberish. They will be unable to speak English. Now, not everybody, but a, about a third or a third of the population will react consistently. You can also tell that person that they are a chicken. And this is always a very comic moment for, in a show. But I actually think it reveals a very profound aspect of human nature because that person will likely think that they are a chicken. Now, so you imagine the propaganda possibilities. If you can shock somebody and then make a suggestion that the only way you can stay safe is by staying inside your house, that suggestion goes deep. The principle of the shock and then suggestion, the suggestion goes deep. Now, I'm not saying this to suggest that, that we were the victims of a mass conspiracy to control us. I think, I think everybody was shocked by the reality of COVID. But I think that the, some of the reasons why people accepted things uncritically, much like you, if, I convert, if I hypnotized somebody and turned them into a chicken, and then you said to the person, hey, you're not a chicken, they would actually probably peck you because they're still a chicken. So similarly, when people absorb a suggestion that's given to them through a shock induction, they've taken it deep. Yes, if I, if I don't stay inside, I'm in danger and I'm endangering everyone else. So I think it would be a great, the reason it needs to be known is that people need to know that these things work. They work on human nature. So that, that's one of the films I'm working on now. The, 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 the second one is just one I would like to make. The one I would like to make is that I believe there's a very interesting phenomena. So I, I did a, a talk at TEDx Queens. And the, I think the interesting thing about it, about this talk, is that it's over 10 million views you know, for a TEDx talk. And people often think it's a TED talk. It's not. It's a it's an obscure TEDx talk. But I I often find myself explaining why there's so much interest in this talk. It is entertaining, but there's a lot of entertaining things on on YouTube that doesn't explain the the numbers. The explanation is that I believe, I, I, and I have to explain, I didn't, I didn't come up with this idea, but I was the first person to sort of publicly explain a working model for hypnosis that actually explains it almost from the top to bottom. And other people have had this idea, but I, I just had, a, I laid it out and then demonstrated it on real people to show that it's true. And I think that's why there's so much interest in that. And I should explain what, why I think it's significant. So I believe and I am different from other hypnotists, that I believe that hypnosis is the common in inheritance, like laughter, it's the common inheritance of all humanity. And this is important because right now, I think you would probably... May I interrupt you? Of course, what does yeah. it mean? What does it mean, a common inheritance in that this it, respect? 
it, it belongs to all of us. It's not, it's not, right now, hypnotists are sort of like the high priests. We're like the priests of, of hypnosis because we're the only ones that can do it. It's like only the priest can do the liturgy in the Catholic Church. Only the hypnotist can do hypnosis. But the truth is that everyone can do hypnosis. Everyone exper- experiences hypnosis. It's a universal phenomenon. And so, so this is controversial because, you know, many countries have laws around this. For example, Israel for many years had a law saying only doctors and, you know, officially accepted hypnotists are allowed to perform hypnosis, which is absurd because hypnosis is being performed all the time. You know, it happens everywhere. One of the, one of the theory, compelling theories of hypnosis is that we are all in trances all the time. They're just different kinds of trances. So, I might be in a talking trance. Somebody might be in a listening trance. They exhibit trance behavior. When somebody's listening, they're not moving very much. It's like a trance. People are in, you know, there are light trances, there are heavy trances. So, so this theory suggests that hypnosis is happening everywhere and that we shouldn't relegate or we shouldn't allow it to be the private domain of doctors and hypnotists. It's too important. So in, in my TEDx, I, I'm not going to explain the whole theory of how hypnosis works because it takes a while, but I'll give you the kind of compelling key part. So there's one thing. So let me start here. When you hypnotize people, and this is when you know they've gone into deep trance, you can often know because their limbs become limp. If you hold their limbs, they, they, there's a liquid quality to their, to their wrists or, or... And this is a way you may see a hypnotist test if somebody's in deep trance, to so take their wrist and shake their wrist. Now, when you know that somebody's in deep trance and you look at their eyes, there's a specific behavior. So you often, often see their eyelids flickering, flickering. If I could act it, I would, but it's hard to, it's a hard performance. It's a hard behavior to act. So, so many people have observed this even right back a hundred years ago. I think Anton Mesmer observed that this flickering eyelid effect, but it started to become relevant when studies appeared on REM sleep, because what happens to us when we're in REM sleep? Our eyelids flicker. So, I might be stating the obvious here, but there's probably an obvious connection between REM sleep and deep trance hypnosis, because in both cases, people's eyes are rolled up and their eyelids are flickering. So that's basically one of the themes of my TEDx, that that's, and when you understand that, you understand huge implications. Why? If hypnosis is a way to engineer a kind of waking REM state, then what does that mean? Well, one, now this is conjecture, but I think it is true. Famously, people describe healing experiences when they're hypnotized, right? They get, they feel, they describe dramatic, sometimes dramatic healing. You can, you can stop wounds from bleeding. You can bring down inflammation simply through hypnosis. And one possible explanation is that studies on sleep show that there are only two healing states in sleep. So the only time that, that a wound will heal or an injury will heal is when a person is either in deep sleep or they're in REM sleep. REM sleep is profoundly healing. 
So it stands to reason that if we can recreate REM sleep in people, like without them having to go to sleep at the snap of our fingers, in a sense, that we can recreate a powerful healing state. And so that's the first assumption that's kind of intriguing. The second assumption, and, and what I've suggested too, is that I believe, and I usually use Star Trek to explain this, that deep transhypnosis is a bit like the holodeck in Star Trek. Now, you kind of have to be a Star Trek fan, but do you remember the, the second Star Trek series? There was this. Next Generation. Yeah. So they had the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember they had the holodeck? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So the holodeck is a place where you can recreate any reality and you can live out any kind of experience that without, in a sense, you know, consequences. And part of the twist is sometimes the consequences are real. Like you, if you died in the holodeck, you might die for real. Well, hypnosis is very much like the holodeck because when somebody goes to deep trance, so let's say the classic example of why somebody is a chicken. So what this points to is the reason why people become chickens under hypnosis, and not just chickens, you can turn somebody into a, into a cat or, or you can turn somebody into a rap singer or a ballet dancer. I, I've demonstrated, I was working once with a, a group of motorcycle bikers and I, they were in deep trance and somebody, I asked, what would you like to see these guys do? And somebody said, dance in the Bolshoi Ballet. So those, I took a bunch of bikers and had them dance as if they were ballet dancers. And they were very serious. People fell off their chairs because laughing because those bikers became the most serious ballet dancers you've ever seen. So how could this be possible? How could I convince, you know, I'm five foot seven, I'm not particularly imposing. How could I convince a bunch of bikers to become very effeminate ballet dancers in a matter of minutes? And convincingly, they, they were, they danced very seriously. And here's the explanation, which points to another paradigm within hypnosis and the holodeck. So... One of the theories of dreaming is that dreaming is an educational process. Like everything that humans do, things have multiple processes. So it's not just educational. It's also deep potentiation. But we learn things when we dream. And they know this because they've actually caused some mammals not to dream, particularly in the womb. And those mammals end up to be retarded, fundamentally retarded. So... So that's a sort of interesting thing. Now, if you had dreams, for example, that you were being chased by wolves, it may then occur to you that you should climb a tree. You basically, what dreams suggest is they are a way to play out things that are probably too dangerous in real life. Like to sort of like do a test of whether or not you could escape from wolves is probably not a good idea. It's better that you have a dream about it where you remember the quality of wolves and you remember that wolves can't climb trees and you can climb a tree. Once you have that dream and then you're walking in the forest and you're, you know, a simian version of a human and you are chased by wolves, you then remember to climb the tree and you save your life and you pass your you pass along your DNA. So this educational aspect of dreaming 
is very, very powerful and not researched. It, the, the, there's a very interesting and obscure term that explains it. And the term that is used is called dream neutrality. And one theory is that the only, right now, the only creatures that have a high level of dream neutrality actually may be humans. I'm not sure about this, but I, I think it may be true. So let me explain it because it does require explanation. So dream neutrality is for you to learn from your dreams, you need to believe they are true. You need to be in the dream believing that the wolves can hurt you so that you can figure out to climb the tree and escape. If you don't think the wolves can hurt you, you won't get the answer. And this is the holodeck. If you don't believe on some level that it's real, then you won't learn from, or you, and you don't get the enjoyment also of the holodeck experience. So, what hypnosis offers is this ability to create a kind of easy holodeck. Like, I've often done this with groups of people. I take a group of people and they're hypnotized together. And I'll have them visit other planets. Now, usually they're just sitting in chairs. I, d I don't want them running around. It's potentially dangerous. But they're just sitting in chairs. And you can describe them going to other planets where it's hot, where it's cold. If it's hot, they will sweat. If it's cold, they might shiver. And they have a kind of holodeck experience. Now, if you do it for a show, it all appears to be comedy. But again, it points to this... What I'm interested in is the dream neutrality part. That part, to me, is intriguing. That it's a much more profound experience. So, what's interesting to me, and I'll just finish here, is that you would be, you might say, "Oh, that's you know, that's an interesting theory that you know hypnosis is REM sleep, or or the such thing as dream neutrality." But I can tell you that. And this sounds like a conspiracy theory, but it's not. The scientific establishment, the psychological establishment, the psychiatric establishment does not agree. I had a group of psychologists contact me and tell me REM, re hypnosis is not REM state, you know, it's not a waking dream state. It's not true. They were like adamant that they, I had to stop saying this. But I, but I was like, no, I'm not going to stop saying it. I see it every day. Every day I see people go into REM state hypnosis. So, so there's a bit of a culture war around this. And the moral of the story is the reason why that TEDx is so interesting is that a lot of people are along the way, are one already have figured this out or have some understanding of it. And that TEDx was the one place where it sort of, I think, comes together. Okay. That's very interesting what you're saying. Something that came up along along this, what you were saying now, that uh, shock-induced hypnosis is, I was thinking of that the people, they are triggered, like a trauma being triggered, and then they have an overreaction, for example, I don't know, they attack someone or whatever. Could this also be uh, a shock-induced trance type of uh, reaction? Because you would usually say they are not themselves in that situation. Yes. So I would say classically, yes, I think it's a very good example. So, so a good example would be certain racist responses have a shock. So for example, right now, there's a number of people who are, you know, this, there's been, there's a controversy every week in the United States where some, usually a white person overreacts to a, a black person walking into a store or walking in a park and I think what's not really well understood is that I think these people are often are legitimately afraid. 
meaning they are they are they may be racist too, but they part of the pro- reason they're having this issue is that they they see a black person that maybe is too close to them, a black man, and they are, they actually are legitimately feeling fear. They think this person can hurt them, but you know. But I think it's a result of what you're describing. So if I if I show you a bunch of movies, it's a very interesting thing. You know where a very dramatic example of this is actually the difference between Canada and the United States. So let me explain like an interesting thing. Both both Canada and the United States have fairly sizable African or or African derived populations, but there's a big difference. Most in, in most black people in the United States are African American. They have a history of sla- through slavery, and most most African derived people in Canada are from the Caribbean because of the history of immigration from the Caribbean. So there there are very many different things, and there, the people have noticed that, for example, the crime rate related to let's say the black underclass is much lower in Canada than it is in the U.S., which you might explain, and I hope I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert in this area, by the the history of trauma and slavery that was much stronger in the United States than it was in Canada, and that you have really two different kinds of people. You have African Americans, and then you have more like Afro-Caribbeans that are in Canada. Well, in Canada, you often have a very similar reaction where Canadians will respond to black men fearfully, because they watch American television. They watch American TV shows where scary black men mug people or scary black men jump out of cars and shoot people, where scary black men do these very shocking things that work as shock inductions. Literally, a gunshot is a shock induction. If you hear a gunshot, you will pay very close attention to whatever comes next. So, so similarly when you have a bunch of black men shooting guns on TV, you basically make the suggestion that black men are potentially extremely dangerous. And the absurdity is that even though statistics would suggest that, you know, there might be a reality if you walk in rough neighborhoods in the United States, you have a chance you might get mugged and maybe that mugger might be black. In Canada, there's no reason to think that or no similar reason to think that. Yet many Canadians respond that way. And I think it's exactly the process that you described. So you <clears throat> specifically would think it's shock induct trance, the way you know it from hypnosis, not just a similar thing, but exactly that. Yes. Well, well, well I would say again. You know, I, we start. I started off by saying I don't that hypnosis is not something that just happens at a hypnotist's office. That you know, trance behaviors are happening all the time. And hypnosis is just a model for understanding them. So, for example, like like I, I I often joke that spanking is a shock induction, because literally what you're trying to do when you spank when a child is spanked violently, it's a shock, and then there's a moral to the story, you know, behave better, stop doing what you were doing, and that and the reason why spanking works is the same reason why shock inductions work. The, sh- the spank is the shock, and then the moral or the suggestion comes right after. And, the, the, you know, it's usually there's a story like, be a good child, don't misbehave, spank, spank, spank. That's, I'm recreating a spanking scenario here. But, but similarly, in, in wartime, 
or when wars are declared, you know, classically the war in Iraq was actually a giant shock induction. So, you know, we you see this horrible event. It scares you the living daylights out of you. So Americans were scared. You know, they saw it. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trivializing any aspect of it because we know this was a massive and you know terrible event by human standards. And but the effect would be after a shock induction, the next suggestion that is made becomes powerful. So whatever it is, this horrible thing that you saw, and then I say it's all. Saddam Hussein's fault, or it's all Osama bin Laden's fault. At that moment, you will go, yes, it's all Osama bin Laden's fault. And so this method of, I mean, this, I think, even goes back to the Blitzkrieg. It works in two ways. It can work in creating adherence, meaning if I, if I shock you and say, we've got we've to beat up the guy down the street and you're kind of my friend— you are more likely to go along with me if I've shocked you first. But it also works in if I'm trying to scare people, I shock them and then also suggest that I, I possess, you know, supernatural power. I think these, this is my limited understanding of the famous Blitzkriegs, you know, by the Nazis, were that, that part of the idea was to start with an incredibly shocking attack and which would cause the enemy to sort of like fold. And that is the similar same principle, I think, of a, of a shock induction. Because you, the suggestion isn't that you should fold. The suggestion is, you know, that one thing I did to you was so overwhelming that, it, that I can now make the suggestion that I possess a power beyond your imagination, which is terrifying. You know, another good example of a shock induction is getting punched in the face. I don't know if you've ever been punched in the face. I have a few times. Oh. But that is a shock induction, too. It gets your attention. And the next thing that you, somebody says to you after they punch you in the face is something you will always remember. So it's a similar principle. Okay. That sounds very interesting. So is there anything else that you think about which implications it has like shock inductions for us individually also maybe uh, on the societal level on the humanity level yeah well the reason i think it's an issue and maybe even a, a sort of a, a problem would be that that uh, so for example there are movies I, i can recommend if you're interested in finding out more i would recommend watching um uh, now you S now you see me it's a hollywood film It's about a group of like magicians, mentalists, and hypnotists that you know rob banks and become incredibly rich, and they're used to manipulate governments. And you know, it's like it's a like Hollywood film. But in the film, one of the actors portrays a hypnotist who who is able just to walk up to people in the street and perform a shock induction. You see the people collapse in his arms. Now I can do that. I can walk up to people. I mean, you can do it. If I showed you the technique, you can do it. I can walk up to people and I can perform a shock induction and they will collapse. I have to catch them. And now they, are, they may not stay in that state for long. It's not as dangerous as it seems. When people see this, they're like, oh my God, somebody could just walk up to me, pull my hand, and then I'd fall on the ground. They could take my wallet and run away. So 
the truth is that it doesn't work that way. But m the movies portrayed as working that way, that anybody can walk up to you and just do this and you're, you're knocked out. It's, it's, it's the, the, what they're not showing you is what's happened before. So what's happened before is I would, if I would do this to somebody, I would say, would you like to try a hypnotic experiment? Are you okay with going into hypnosis? And I've sort of suggested to them that I'm not going to hurt you in any way. I'm going to watch out for your safety. So what I've created is a kind of safe atmosphere. Then I might tell them to take to breathe in. Why? Because when people slow their breathing down, they're starting to move into the, the calmer nervous system. So they're sort of I've set a kind of momentum intention where I'm suggesting you can go to a, a calm place. Then I perform the shock induction, and at that point they might drop. Now, so this has implications because I, you know, my question, I guess I would ask you or I would ask your audience. Is this information that belongs to humanity or should it be sort of the private purview of, of hypnotists and maybe people that are interested in mind control? And my feeling is that this belongs to humanity. It's, it's, it's a aspect of human nature. I, I think it's there for a reason. It's there. I think it has to do like the way it originates it's a little bit of a hack in, a, in an evolutionary that has an, that in an evolutionary behavior. The hack is that if, if you, you know, things in the animal world move very quickly. So if you were being stalked by a tiger, the moment you have to respond is very short, meaning the tiger, you might hear a, like a rustle and then the tiger's on you, right? So, so we are equipped with a very quick reorientation system, okay? So that we... So, or, or any, you know, any kind of attack event in nature happens very fast. Famously, snakes and other animals are, have been designed by, designed by evolution to strike so quickly before the, you know, the animal can respond. So it's something that's out there a lot. And mammals have the ability to reorient really fast. I'm sure this has happened to you. You hear a loud bang and you jump. That's you reorienting. So... What hypnotists have discovered, I didn't discover it, it's been known probably for, I would guess, a few decades, that I, as far as I know, is that when you shock somebody and they try to reorient quickly, that if you sort of say to them, you're basically psychologically saying to them, it's okay, don't panic, just go to sleep. That because that instruction is given to their unconscious mind, not their conscious mind, they often will go straight into sleep. They will, they will go deep into trance. So this phenomena is essentially a hack of a very natural impulse to like reorient when you're shocked. But it's been used to control and manipulate people. And I, I think, you know, it's used regularly to start wars, to rally people to your cause. It's, it's just an effective method of persuasion it reminds me of the I, I did a documentary on the origins of the death squad well actually sorry it was a newspaper article not a documentary but but i, I my belief is that the de the concept of the death squad originates in romania and with the romanian iron guard which sort of came about was a sort of a fascist movement came about in at the same time or rose to prominence with the nazis and 
they, they actually influenced the Nazis. So one theory is that the Nazis got their idea from the Romanians. So in, what the Romanian Iron Guard would do is that if, if you had a political opponent, so if you, were, you and I were political opponents, instead of arguing with you, or let's say the, if the, the, the opposition became ferocious, instead of just, let's say, shooting you, what the Iron Guard invented was a system where they would go to their opponent's house, they would kill the person, and they would very violently mangle the corpse, or they would kill them in a terrible way. And they had a signature move, which they would leave a knife. They would leave a knife directly in the person's heart, a big dagger in the person's heart. So then, when the family found them, or, or people arrived, they would see this horrible scene. Now, the the reason why this mattered is because the Iron Guard became very successful. They were probably a bunch of crackpots, bullies, conspiracy theorists, priests, fanatics. You know, they weren't people that should have a large movement, but they quickly gained a very large movement because they scared the shit out of everybody. And that, what I think it was, in effect, a shock, a shock induction, where they perform an act that is so shocking that people need to recreate another reality. The reality is probably like, I don't want to challenge these people because that could happen to me, or I'm just going to run away, which is sort of what happened. And the Nazis then developed very similar tactics. You know, always start with shock and make the shock so crazy. But that, that's basically the definition of hypnotic suggestion. You know, ISIS did the same thing. Cut off someone's head. It's so crazy and so shocking that the, the, your opponents are going to be like, I don't even want to dance. You know, I'm not interested in in engaging with you because it's so crazy. And so that that principle is still at work, I think, in all those situations. I think right. it's probably in the CIA manuals and that kind of thing. You know, it's it's taught would be my guess. You talked about a lot of different uh, paradigms now. Is there anything else specifically when it comes to challenging paradigms that you would like to share with us? There's just maybe just one that also, I mean, I think hypnosis has, for me, many implications. And I say this sort of as not a hypnotist. You know, it sounds funny to say that, but I say that almost as a journalist. You know, I'm looking at the sort of what's going on and I'm like, wow, this is interesting. So one of the weirdest aspects of hypnosis is actually another side of it. So if you go to a late night hypnosis show in, in Las Vegas right now, it's just where the generally where the raciest shows are. At the end of the show, commonly, the hypnotist will say something like, when I snap my fingers, everyone on stage will have an enormous orgasm. And then when you watch, it happens. What you see is like a bunch of people writhing around and it appears that they are having orgasms. So when you go to these shows, you know, it's usually people that are drunk. People laugh, you know, quite a bit. But I find like nobody really cares about whether this is real or not. And as a kind of nerd myself, I when I, I've seen this phenomenon, I saw it maybe 10 years ago. Of course, my reaction was, is this real? 
are, are, are these people just acting like they're having orgasms or are they really having orgasms? And so this blows another door wide open. So, of course, I worked with a group of people. I'm interested, obviously, in experimental hypnosis, and it's not hard to do. You can get a group of friends together, and you can just try things. And so I, uh, I got a group together in Montreal called the Montreal Experimental Trance Group. It's a group of hypnotists, a group of people that are interested in hypnosis, people that are meditators, that kind of thing. And we experimented, and we found out, whoa, put somebody in a particular trance, it's a somnambulant trance, which is not that hard to get, basically a quarter of the population can do it easily. And those people can very easily be walked into a huge orgasm in any situation. They can be, like, so for example, I did a talk where I, we filmed a woman who was in, a, in, front of a, in front of 12 people at a workshop, you know, having an enormous orgasm, and she certainly didn't mind this happens with people with their clothes on, obviously with their consent. and But the implications are also huge. Let me explain what I think the implications are. So I believe, and in, in, in this is a project I'm working on right now, that one of the problems with humanity is our sexual codes and cultures are wrong in that they are often that most stress behavior, sorry, most sex behavior is actually a stress behavior, meaning we live in a culture where people are expected to perform, men and women, that somehow sex is this sort of act of high accomplishment, like a kind of gymnastic exercise, which both partners engage in and is supposed to come naturally. So, which it only does in a number of rare occasions. And the fallout is that most people feel like they're sexually dysfunctional. 10% of women are anorgasmic. They've 10% of women have never had orgasms. A certain percentage of men have never had orgasms. And I think that this is a very easy to fix. And it's not, again, it's, hypnosis is the door, the doorway. What hypnosis reveals is that, so, so the one part I didn't tell you about earlier in, in explaining the whole model for hypnosis, the last part, then maybe it's significant here, is that hypnosis basically allows you to get into the programming language of unconscious human nature. I mean, the reason why people go to, you know, to quit smoking or something along those lines or lose weight is that ultimately smoking is like a bad program. You know, you, your body interprets smoking as a, a something that's good for you, but ultimately it's bad for you, you know? So hypnosis is good at fixing that because what we do is we get into the programming language and we go, oh, this is what smoking really is. And this is what healthy things really are. You should stop doing that unhealthy thing and let's start doing the healthy thing. So really hypnosis offers you access. And it's, you know, we're, I know we're uncomfortable saying that people are like computers, but hypnosis shows that people are like computers a lot. You know, we're, we're very sophisticated computers, but we definitely run programs. And and similarly, almost everybody right now in our culture runs sexual programs, cliche programs like I do this and then you do that. You do that and I do this. And that creates a lack of intimacy, closeness, ultimately a lack of love And from my point of view. And it's very easy to fix. When people go to these very relaxed states, they are far more orgasmic. So people in these trances can have 10, 20 orgasms at a time. 
And what's interesting about them is the orgasms can be tailored. So meaning somebody can have an orgasm and you can tell them it's going to be lemon. It's going to, you're going to taste lemon when you have the orgasm. And then when you ask them what it was like, they'll say, holy cow, I had an orgasm. And the whole thing was lemon flavored. That sounds like a joke. But the significance of it is that you're in the programming language. So it means like, for example, I've had clients. So clients are people who love their husbands or love their wives or love their partners, but they don't associate their partner with orgasms. They just don't. For whatever reason, there's a block there. So it's very easy to take that person with their consent, put them into a deep trance, and then have them have an orgasm about the person that they love. And of course, orgasm, now this is all theory. One theory is that orgasm is a target state, which in the hypnosis target state is like you're trying to get to whatever that is. So when you have uh, an orgasm about the person that you love, then you start to increase attraction and arousal for that person, if you, even if you didn't feel it before. So this is a wonderful thing in the right hands. You know, it's, it's a really beautiful thing. And there are dangers with this. I should mention there are a lot of ethical issues around it. Of course, you could manipulate people possibly. But generally, you know, I know there's people probably listening to this thinking, you know, what about mind control? And Well, here's the interesting thing, that when a hypnotist, you know, works with you, so let's say a hypnotist, let's say as a hypnotist, I was able to say to put someone in a trance and I'd say, at the end of this experience, you're going to go to your bank account, withdraw all your money and email it to me. And you'll forget that you did it. Well, in an individual holodeck experience, I might be able to do that. I can make people forget things in trance. Like anyone who's a good hypnotist can make people forget things in trance. But... When they wake up, it all comes back. It's just a holodeck experience, a temporary experience. So then when they would remember, hey, you told me to, you know, you told me to take all my money and give it to you. So, and then I would get arrested. So, so it doesn't work. It doesn't pay. If, if hypnosis had the ability that sometimes people think it has in terms of manipulative or criminal acts, there would be hypnotists committing crimes everywhere. But they don't. I'll, maybe I'll close with this one interesting story. So there, there was an example. There was a guy, I think in Italy, who was hypnotizing. He was hypnotizing cashiers to drop their money into a bag. And they would do it. They had video of like the cashier would get a blank look and then he would arrive and they would just take the money out of the cash and put it in his bag and he would run off with the money. But... What was funny about the story was that eventually he got caught because a cashier like woke up in the middle of it, which is typical. And there's another example of this that sort of proves the reality of the situation. So there's a there's a, a hypnotist called Spidey who really likes to push the envelope of what can be done. And what he did is he demonstrated that he could drive, he would drive through a stop sign, knowing that the police would catch him. And then he would try to hypnotize the police into not giving him a traffic ticket. So he dem there's an amazing video. You can look it up. Hypnotist. I think it's look up hypnotist police. You can find it where the guy, he drives at twice the speed limit through a stop sign. 
gets pulled over by the police. They're right there. He knows they're there. He drives right in front of them, gets, you know, basically gets pulled over. And then he does hypnosis. And he actually uses snap inductions. What he says to the police is he says, he uses another thing called a pattern interrupt. The police starts his story and says, do you know that you drove? And he says, hold on a second. He says, do you know where the next gas station is? I'm sorry. I just want to ask you. I just need to know where the gas station is. He says it politely. And what that phenomenon is, is the same principle that when you interrupt somebody's pattern, they're more open to suggestion. So, and then when the police starts to talk, the hypnotist snaps his fingers and he says, yes. So, snap is a shock. And he says, have you ever gone somewhere and forgotten why you're there? So, the hypnotist acts like he's talking about himself, but he's really made the suggestion to the police officer. He's basically gone... Have you ever gone somewhere and forgotten why you're there? And then that's what happens to the police officer. He actually gets very confused. And the hypnotist says, well, I guess I can just go then. And then the police officer goes, yes, you can just go. And then he drives away without a ticket. Okay. So this is amazing. When people see it, they're like, holy cow, imagine the mind control possibilities. Well, I know that hypnotist. And what he demonstrates at the end of the video, which a lot of people don't see, is that he did this five times or four or five times and four out of the five times he got a ticket for like $157. So, and that's roughly the proportionality of how much it works. You know, about a quarter of the time people go deep, but it's not a successful crime tactic because you're going to get caught. So the moral of the story is Hypnosis, in my view, is belongs to everybody. There's no reason that it has to be the mystery purview of hypnotists. That it has huge implications for human health, safety. It has huge implications for human sexuality. And it offers a kind of access point, a way... If you look at anybody's problems in their lives, very few problems are, are conscious problems, meaning nobody, you know acts like a jerk and then says like i knew very well i was acting like a jerk or usually our behaviors that are problematic are unconscious we get anxious we get angry we get upset we do unconscious things we get addicted these are all unconscious behaviors so hypnosis offers us a way to change bad programs and to become better people and it's easy it's not that hard and the irony of it is that it all came from Vienna, where you come from, Anton Mesmer. And Anton Mesmer, who was the first person to really demonstrate hypnosis publicly, widely, was tragically discredited, ridiculed, made fun, and died, you know, tragically in obscurity, being made to feel that he was wrong, that it was all witchcraft. But he was right. I really wonder, when you look back, uh, you've done a lot of different things. With, I guess uh, through filmmaking, you can look into very various fields and that you're interested in and gives you a certain type of possibilities. But when you sum it up, when you look into the past, why would you say you do what you do? That's like a very good question. I would say that even as a teenager, I had the sense that I was living in a false reality. Uh, 
So meaning like I remember when I went to high school that it was a little bit like watch like I was in a Walt Disney movie where full of facades. And I even think that many people's human personalities are a little bit like facades because we've been giving these cliche ways of being and ways of living. And so I became hungry for the awareness that there was more. And I really think there is more. I mean, not just, I'm not talking just about hypnosis. I mean, I, I bet this has happened to you as well since sort of pursuing paradigm shifts. So you realize, I mean, I could go on about ayahuasca. That's a whole other paradigm. You know, plant medicine, a whole other paradigm. Aliens, a whole other paradigm. So, so I think that that's what really motivated me. And, I, you know, I think my father, was a, my father was a scientist, a physicist, and I think I might have inherited some search for truth, you know. Or for me, I don't know if this is the same for you, that I felt like the search for truth actually makes my world safer, you know, that, that it, could, it should work out to be a better world for me and maybe my people, my family, you know, that kind of thing, if things are known things are understood i've seen this with the pandemic one of the frightening parts of the pandemic i don't think it's as bad in europe but here in america there's a lot of like if you look at the history of pandemics and there's a part that people aren't talking about which is the the weird um scapegoating behavior so throughout pandemics people they're they're always burning people at the stake during the pandemic why because they would blame the pandemic on the guy with the weird house or the, or the people with the darker skin or the, you know, and those people would die. And now it's not that bad now, thankfully, but you do see it, the similar pattern where always somebody needs to be blamed. The people not wearing masks, the people that are old, the people that are young, somebody's always getting blamed. And I actually think that is part of the pandemic. So, the last thing I would say is that us understanding this, what I've also seen is that I've confronted some people with, with, I've, with I've accused them of using scapegoating behavior, and I actually have seen them correct their behavior right away. They go, yeah, they kind of snap out of it and go, whoa, what was I doing there? And so it's one of the interesting areas where awareness can make a big difference. You know, when you say to people, yeah. it's, you know, black people didn't cause the pandemic, there they might go you're right you know i have to think about that i shouldn't i should stop blaming it on somebody you know so that's something yeah. so knowledge really matters so i'm glad we did this okay so you would you say it's would it be like seeking for truth and yeah. showing a different type of reality yeah and i think that that my style has always been a very clear street reality i, I was before i was you know anything like I was a street performer, I was a street musician, and that gave me, like, for some reason that really showed me, like, I performed with every kind of drunken, regular person. So I sort of have a sense of the, of the guy on the street, the man or woman on the street, and I like that. I like that I can speak to everyone about things that might be quite abstract or quite scientific. And I think the world needs right now, we, you know, we have the knowledge for a better world. We have the knowledge to stop climate change. We have the knowledge to stop this pandemic. It's sort of like the, we have to use it. Definitely. So 
like when you go now into the future of your life and imagine yourself looking back to today so what's the impact you would have liked to have had on humanity imagining from your deathbed for example looking bad i have a pretty clear answer i would want people to laugh because i think laugh is this nod not ju unjudgmental shared universe human universal and i would rather be people like rather than people say that guy was really smart they i rather they say that guy really made me laugh and and because i think it's a good way to be remembered it's a good feeling and you know i i i'm worried about the way the world is going i think we'd have to do a whole other podcast the world is not i don't think i think a lot of us aren't feeling it's going in a good direction but but i think there like i like i said is i think the reason why you do this and what you do what you do and i do what i do is that sharing important information makes the world better thank you thank you yes thank you very much for this very interesting conversation yeah so i wish you then a great day thank you for staying tuned for this edition of challenging paradigm x If you like this episode with Albert Nuremberg, feel free to share it with your community so Albert's message gets spread even further. In the show notes, you will find the links to his documentaries, his website, and his TEDx talk. Also, please hit subscribe and rate my podcast if you liked it, and I'd be glad about a review. You can support this podcast through Patreon. And if you have any questions or comments, feel free to contact me. Next week, we're up with another edition of Challenging Paradigm X. So until then, I wish you a great week and say ciao.